0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have
1: you ever had a package stolen off your front porch? Well, North Vancouver RCMP are warning the public about these so-called porch pirates. They say they're seeing more activity than usual on that front lately. So we thought, let's check in with our Raji Sohal because that's her hood. And she can tell us. Raju, what are you seeing out there?
2: Okay, well, it hasn't happened to me. Um, I also work from home and I would monitor that kind of thing. And then on top of that, Simi, I try not to order very much online, period. But this is a huge problem that I've been hearing about from not just my like immediate neighbors, but from all across North Vancouver. You know I'm a part of every single kind of Facebook forum and Reddit group for <laughs> North Vancouver. <my> <laughs> I love to monitor that stuff. Hey, mostly for our dear listeners. So what I have been seeing and hearing is that uh, this is a big problem for a lot of people to the extent that so many people have had to get the surveillance cameras outside on their porch. Right. And then you know what they do when they catch these people who totally like look unassuming. Exactly, look right. suspicious, look like they could be perhaps themselves even, you know, dropping something off at your door. And then boom, they do a quick look over the shoulder, they grab a package and they're out of there. And a lot of people are putting their surveillance videos online, um, which has been controversial because folks are saying you don't know that person's, you know, individual circumstances, you don't know what happened to them and that kind of thing. So well, yeah, what I do know is that they took my package. Exactly. It's
1: not theirs, (laughs) not their house, not their package, not their name on it. So circumstances or no circumstances, that's wrong.
2: Yeah, I don't know if you heard about this was happening. Um, There's a big boom of this at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and there was this guy in the States who created these uh, kind of bombs, like little, Oh, tiny I did see this. Yes. Bombs. Yeah. And so people would take his packages, and uh, he had a little cam inside, just a cheap one, but he was able to get footage of the people who'd stolen the packages opening the package, getting like hit in the face with all this glitter and whatever, and it created a little bit of a movement where people were like, We need to we need to get back right. We need to all figure something out to get back at these people who are taking packages. I know it's a big problem for people in condos, especially because of how much easier it is to take those packages. Uh, and you know, you're supposed to say that you're going to sign off on these. Of course, it and that doesn't happen. Delivered.
1: You just hit the no. nail on the head right there because I think delivery companies are just swamped these days. You're supposed to ring the doorbell or knock on yeah. the door when you drop something off. But I tell you, like just this week I ordered a book, um, and same thing. I was waiting for it. I knew it was coming that day. I was home all day didn't, all I heard was the thump that it landed on the front steps and no doorbell, no door knock, no nothing. So I managed, I got out there quickly and I got it. But I think that's the pet peeve for a lot of people is they're home like you, they're working from home. Just tell us when something arrives.
2: Yeah, totally. And then I think a lot of people don't have a, you know, secure, very private front of the house. So when that package is like outside on someone's doorstep, I think that some my guess is here's a little bit of like armchair sociology coming out of me right now. I think what happens for some people who are taking these packages is that maybe they wouldn't take other things, but they see that package oh, outside no. of someone's door and they're like, well, it's not really theirs yet. No, and they can I, probably call the company right. and complain. You
1: are armchair um, sociology. You're doing and, the <laughs> armchair sociologist on this. I think they just look at that and they think something brand new, something cool. I'm taking it.
2: Yeah oh, it really irks me.
1: <laughs> I know, it really does. I And I know a lot of people have had this problem, so I would like to hear from Maybe you've got a solution. Maybe you tried to figure out a way. Maybe you've had this happen to you. But let's hear your story on this. You can email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzzline six zero four three three one two eight nine nine. 604-331-2899. You know, Roger, the only thing, we've had a pair of shoes stolen off of our front steps. Oh, no. And this, you know, and this comes from like working in a business where we do hear the worst stories every day. And it was a brand new pair of running shoes. It had been raining out. They were wet. So my husband left them just outside to dry. And you know what? (sighs) He drives me crazy. He propped them up so that they would dry <laughs> properly, but of course, clearly visible from the street. You mean this you new mean pair Put a
2: sign on around them with yeah. a big arrow saying, right. Please "Take these! They're take brand these brand new, new running wet. shoes! Just put some newspaper in them, and they'll be fine yeah. after a few
1: hours." And, and then he you know what I've heard? Couldn't one find them. One and He was like, "I can't believe somebody would take my running shoes." I said, "Really? You Aww. can't believe that? I can believe that."
2: Oh, that's such a bummer. Yeah, I heard of one person. Um, this seems like an effective, like, way to do it. Is uh, they leave out a dirty old Rubbermaid bin empty where they're expecting a package and they leave a note in the, their orders whenever they're ordering something online for the new package to be placed inside that gross Rubbermaid bin. Oh. And he said that if someone's going to, you know, open up that Rubbermaid bin, because they're kind of cumbersome, right? Right. You know, like you, they, they crack open a little bit. Um and it's such a specific thing to ask someone to do that like that extra step might in fact be the deterrent that prevents somebody from going in and stealing something from you.
1: Right. So as long as it's like readily available, they're, they're pretty much just walking by and looking at and seeing if there's something sitting there and they're going to grab it.
2: It's yeah, like a prime of opportunity. I mean, Right now, it's going to be so easy, right? Like everyone's getting their Christmas packages um, delivered now because of the supply shortages that we keep hearing about. So it's a really easy thing to do. Just walk around and do your Christmas shopping that way. Go around picking up other people's new packages.
1: Are you cool with people putting the, the video of it on Facebook and social media?
2: Oh, look at listen feel, to Rogers thinking about, about it. it. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm of two minds about it um, because I do think that there's probably some cases in which, I mean, very rarely, but in which like, uh, you wouldn't want to do that to the person. But in most of the cases, like you know, Simi, we've all been hearing about all this petty crime that's been happening lately. Someone went into the other day my uh, friend's backyard in a nice neighborhood. Um, in Vancouver, in the middle of the night, and started shouting profanities. And this is like not an area where that would normally Oof. happen. That's scary. And you know, woke up their children. And uh, this person has a, a unit on um, a, a basement unit suite, and uh, those people were woken up, and everyone was really frightened. And again, like so, when one, one of the neighbors wanted to put uh, footage of that person online because they were trespassing and they wanted everyone to know. And I thought, Oh uh,
1: no, that oh, I'd feel really I draw the line that. on that. Yeah. I draw that. You're right about that one because that is somebody who has some issues and that's pretty yeah. clear that they have some issues. I think that stealing something, though, is a different situation. That's, that's definitely yeah. like somebody is, they put thought into that. They had to walk, they had to see it. They had to walk up your front steps. They had to assess yeah. the danger of is somebody going to be True. home, is somebody going to, and they, so there was a lot of thought that went into grabbing that box off your yeah. front steps.
2: It's like premeditated exactly. for sure. I did see uh, one video that people were putting up in North Van of somebody who had done this several times and they did not look well. They seemed troubled and I didn't, I didn't think that one needed to go up, but then I've also seen ones of, um, you know, cause a lot of these people, they do it on a regular basis, right? Yeah. Uh, the, drive so around, one of look duo. for packages. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a man and a woman who do it together. And I thought, oh, I'll put their video That's up everywhere, girl. please. Yes, exactly. So I
1: can look out for them. That is a professional thing that they are doing. Well, let's see if it's happened to everybody else out there. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. If you've been the victim of porch pirates, do you, is this getting worse in your neighborhood? Do you think do you have a solution? Or what is it that you've tried to deter from this?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: So we are going to be offering a booster dose for all British Columbians, but it will be based on what we have just seen as important risk factors for decreased protection over time and at risk for ending up with severe illness, hospitalization, or death. So everyone in BC who has received their two doses who wants a booster dose will be eligible to receive it at least six months after their first uh, the dose two.
1: All right, that was Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday making the announcement for BC's COVID-19 booster dose program. And as she said, everyone who wants it. This one is not mandatory. It is your choice to do that. But essentially, if you're over the age of 70, you should expect to have the option to get that booster shot by the end of this year, they're rolling it out in the similar fashion to how we got the vaccine originally. So vulnerable people who are immunocompromised, healthcare workers and acute care, uh, and then they'll get to you in your age group. But because it's mandatory, because it is is not mandatory, because it's optional, what should be the decision-making process for you? Like, how do you decide what what would make you think, okay, I should definitely get this? Well, joining us now is Dr. Brenda Narang, who's a family physician and co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign. Dr. Narang, thanks for being here.
3: Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: So what do you think about the rollout? Is this the program that you were hoping for?
3: Yeah, I think it's actually, um, you know, they gave a pretty comprehensive overview of what um, the approach will be. And I think at times um, people have struggled with the, the British Columbia approach to things, thinking that it can be reactive at times. But I think it was quite a proactive program, anticipating that there is um, going to be a need and demand um, for a lot of people in the population.
1: Right, so BC thats the will we'll be the first jurisdiction in North America to do this, right?
3: As far as I understand, yes, I know that there are certain um, subpopulations which have already started getting boosters um, across Canada and North America. Um, but it has been very inconsistent, and I think that that um, reflects that the data um, isn't completely solid yet. But what we have noticed, even in the last week, that that is changing. There is, in two fronts, We're seeing evidence of um, um, dropping effectiveness, including um, a CDC uh, study that came out of frontline workers that found that the vaccine effectiveness at preventing infections dropped from 91% in the pre-Delta times to 66% after Delta became dominant. So we're seeing a drop. And then we're also seeing... um, uh, uh, more studies of how effective the boosters are that kind of reboosting that back up. So Pfizer released a study of 10,000 uh, people randomized control trial last week which showed that the um, vaccine efficacy went back up to around 95.6% um, um, and this is during the period when Delta was the prevalent strain. And so, you know, when you take those two things together and the fact that there is um, safety that's being demonstrated then, yeah, for some people, they will feel more confident with that. And again, it comes back to what are your individual circumstances, right. um, your risk tolerance, um, and how you did with the first two vaccines.
1: Right. And do you think that's what will help someone to decide if this is optional, How what, what should go into that decision-making process, do you think?
3: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I look at, you know, I, even though I mentioned those two things, I look at what's happening in B.C. And in BC, what's happening right now is um, we've had two um, people have had two doses um, of multiple combinations of vaccines, and that's proven to be a good strategy, and it is preventing people from um, being kept out of hospital. So I think in people's individual risk is still quite low, but what we do see and something that was presented yesterday. Um, in, the, uh, in the BC data is that we're starting to see hospitalizations go up really again over the age of 80. And so while your individual risk may be low of protecting yourself, um, again, there are people that are, risk, especially those in our, in our long-term care. So we did see over the last few months that a lot of the deaths we are having are in those 80-plus um, populations again. And so it, um, with that their immunity waning. Even if you your personal infection risk is low, if you kind of get it, you might have like those milder symptoms, and you know might write uh, write it off as a, a cold. But then we we have also on a society basis opened up. So then your risk of transmission is still there, even though it's not as much. So again, it's really. You know, who are we protecting here? Yes, mm-hmm. you want to protect yourself, but really, this is a, an opportunity to really make sure that we can protect people around us without having to shut down society again.
1: Right. And are these, are these vaccines being tweaked, Dr. Narang? Like, I know there's a lot of concern about variants out there. Uh, will, that, will these vaccines, getting a booster shot, will that help?
3: No, so these ones that are coming are the same um vaccines that have uh, we've had before. So those are if we're looking at Pfizer Moderna, they will be mRNA based um boosters and they are the same dose and the same strain. And the the studies that have shown the efficacy of those are with the um um the same kind of cocktail in the vaccine. now that has is shown to be effective. Um but we, and we know in DC, um, basically 100% of our strains have been um, the Delta strain. And so we do know that there are other variants of interest and under kind of, uh, you know, a, a exploration around the world. Um, but we even, um, that some of those have started to come into BC, but they haven't proven to be competitive over the Delta variant. And so it, every week, the CDC, BC CDC releases data on what are the variants in our community. And for the last little while, it's been a hundred percent Delta.
1: Right. But we keep hearing about new ones coming along too.
3: We do hear about them, but that even though we hear about them, doesn't mean that um, they can outcompete the one that's already there. And so it's important um to kind of uh, uh keep that you know keep an eye on that, right, I like mean, fight this one that we know is the out. problem, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I'm sure that the drug companies are looking at that as well, and the um, government to see kind of if there are areas where that is becoming more predominant, I know that people are talking about the delta plus now the Kappa and the mu, but yeah, those ones haven't been um, predominant here in b c so there's What we're doing right now reflects what's happening here right now and um, tangible uh, steps that we can make to help reduce uh, everyone's risk.
1: Right. Do you think, Dr. Narang, that a lot of British Columbians will take this up?
3: I I think so, yeah, because people want to study, people see what's happening, sorry, not study, people want to travel, (laughs) and they do know that. um, this is an extra layer of protection. Again, there will be people that are hesitant. And um, I think it's important to recognize that Dr. Henry did mention that this won't impact people's um, vaccine card status. So if you've had your two doses, that will uh, for um, for now consider you um, fully vaccinated. Right. And we know that the vaccine card, we don't want it here to stay. One thing I would mention, though, is that like people like myself, now I got my um, second dose back in January, and that was before the provincial Um, system was even set up. So if people did get them, if they're frontline health workers, or if they were at pop-up clinics or opportunistically got one, uh, you know, end of the day doses before the provincial booking system got up, you, we all need to register on that provincial system or we won't get contacted. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that is good advice out there. All right, Dr. Narang, thanks so much for your time.
3: No worries. Have a
1: good day. That's, that's Dr. Brenda Narang, who's a family physician and co-founder of the This Is Our Shot campaign, talking about the booster shot situation. And they're not, they're optional. They are not mandatory. But as you heard him lay it out, this is effective. This is going to be obviously in demand by a lot of people. If you're registered on the provincial system, great. If you're not, make sure you're registered. But essentially, you will be contacted in the same way and fashion that you were contacted for your original vaccination too. We were going to ta- We're going to talk more about all of this coming up with Health Minister Adrian Dix. That's after the 7.30 news. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this week, Premier John Horgan announced an updated Clean BC plan. Part of it involved electric vehicles and the hope that BC will reach 100% zero-emission vehicles by the year 2035. Now, that is five years ahead of the previous schedule that they had announced. What we also learned is that B.C. is the leader in Canada for electric vehicle sales. But why is that? I mean, is there enough for infrastructure for us to be 100% electric vehicles by 2035? What makes an electric vehicle more appealing in B.C. than in other jurisdictions? Well, joining us now is John Stonia, who's the president of the Vancouver Electric Vehicle Association. John, thank you for being here. Good morning. So why is B.C. such a hotbed of electric vehicle sales? You know, I think
4: we've got a history of being leaders in a lot of different things. You know, 15 years ago, when I got interested in electric vehicles, it was because, you know, uh, my wife bought a Prius. And back then, um, although BC had 13% of the population, we were buying 25% of the hybrid cars in Canada at that time. I mean, we've always sort of been leaders. We've We've had a strong clean tech base that has spawned a lot of individuals that are into, you know, Everything from solar, electric, hydrogen, Ballard fuel cells, loop energy. There's a lot of businesses here that are all in the clean tech space. And I like to think of B.C. as sort of the California of Canada. I mean, we are uh, a, a tech area. People are closer to the environment. Um, and we're more and concerned about preserving that environment.
1: So what about incentives? Do incentives work? as we know for a few years there, we had some pretty good incentives to buy electric vehicles.
4: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that has been a big a big plus for, for BC. We've been leaders. Actually, we haven't had the highest uh, incentives. There were actually higher incentives in Ontario and Quebec for a while and still in Quebec uh, for the initial incentives. But um, we've got a very strong incentive base at this point in time. And even though it's dropping away, I think people, we're now 10 years into the electric car revolution and people are seeing that, Electric cars are not, I mean, I'm an accountant and unfortunately, you know, people say electric cars are too expensive and I go, well, what are you talking about? If you're talking about total cost of ownership, they are much, much cheaper.
1: What about infrastructure though, John? Like if everybody decided to buy an electric vehicle, can, can our system handle that?
4: Well, we have, the system can handle the short term. Um, And one of the, well, there's a bunch of different topics here. Uh, Let's talk about infrastructure. First of all, um, say in the urban area of metro vancouver 60 of the people are living in condos and condos don't have charging to the car so that that's the, the primary infrastructure you need to own an electric car you need to be able to charge it conveniently hopefully when you're sleeping overnight so that is a problem and we've had a government that in the last few years uh, you know starting in the last you know two governments have been progressive on getting infrastructure in place. I think Viva started working with the city of Vancouver back in 2006 and we got the city of Vancouver to mandate that all new buildings as of 2011 had 20% charging. Um, now we've got 16 communities in British Columbia that for all new buildings, hundred um, percent of the stalls have to be ready for plugging in an electric car. Now that's all the new ones, but what about all the legacy condos that 's ninety eight percent of yeah. the condos and rental buildings out there, and that 's where there's a problem now our, our, our BC government has been extremely progressive, and I really realized this. I was on an international conference last November. it was a zoom call. Um, there was representatives from norway, Scotland, Australia, New Zealand, and I was a Canadian sort of uh, and, and we were comparing, like I was comparing notes. And BC is way ahead on this kind of stuff. We've got a very supportive government right now uh, on condo fin- financing. You can get, like, major amounts of money, $80,000 in the uh, EV infrastructure program and help other help to get, get your engineering studies done. That is unprecedented anywhere else in the world. And we like to hold ourselves out and share those policies with other countries, other uh, provinces as an example of what can be done. Make no mistake, the condo market, the legacy market, is it's a big decision. Strata Councils really wrestle with this, and it's a matter of, well, are we going to electric cars or not? That's the, the controversy.
1: Right, I can see that. All right, John, thank you so much for your time.
0: You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It's a big health briefing that we had yesterday, but there's still a lot of questions that we have about how this is going to work. We've got the booster shot campaign that was announced. We know there are health workers who remain unvaccinated. So for more on that, to answer some of our questions, joining us now is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Good morning. Good morning, Sydney. Let's start with the whole deadline for health workers to be vaccinated. Do we know how many still are not
5: we do approximately uh, in, in both cases about ninety-seven percent of healthcare workers have been vaccinated. So that leaves about three percent across the board in the healthcare system. It's a lot of workers, so it's one hundred and thirty thousand workers. You know, three percent doesn't sound like very much, but of course, three percent of that number is, is about four thousand workers across the system. Uh, there isn't much. Uh, difference between classes of workers, like nurses or doctors or other classes, everyone's pretty much vaccinated at that very high level, but we do see a higher rate of unvaccinated people in the Interior Health Authority, and that means that we're uh, we're making a lot of efforts now to make sure that uh, everyone gets the health care they need and everyone stays safe, and that's going to be a challenge, because in the Interior Health Authority, it's about 7%, which, of course is uh, more than twice as high as 3%.
1: Yeah, so what's going to happen? So are those people no longer on the job?
5: That's right. Uh, For the next two weeks, um, people who are not vaccinated will be on leave of absence without pay. And so there's two things we discussed about this yesterday. The order was brought in for long-term care and assisted living two weeks ago. That was October the 12th. So that group of people is starting to face um, termination of their employment after this two weeks period. And that's a very solemn, very difficult thing for them. That's about 17 to 1,800 people in total. But not all of them are working full-time. But still, it's very, very significant for that group of people and for the healthcare system, of course. And then it was a group of people uh, who are in the acute care system and so on. Um, they're right now uh, on leave without pay. And in two weeks, we'll be facing uh, the same prospects. So, uh, we really want to encourage people to get vaccinated. It's necessary in our healthcare system. We've seen that over time, the level of risk is is very significant for people, both for workers, uh, for family members, but particularly for residents and patients. And so we needed to take this action, but uh, obviously it's very significant for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, Are you worried about how this is going to perhaps disproportionately affect some areas of the province, perhaps that northeastern part where they can't afford to lose the healthcare workers they already have?
5: Well, COVID-19 is affecting different regions at different times, and we've talked about this many, many times, Simi. Right now, obviously, in the north, it's significant. Uh, 67 people have in critical care, when you think of that, in critical care, have been flown out of the north to get support in other regions. So those interventions have been happening. In the north, um, vaccination rates are actually higher than in the Interior Health Authority. The Interior Health Authority sort of goes up to Williams Lake and then over to the border in the, in the sort of southeast quadrant of the province and then down to, down to, uh, to Merritt and so on. And so that's where we have um, the highest rate of rates of unvaccinated people. In the north, we've seen quite a bit of vaccination amongst healthcare workers in the last uh, few weeks, in the last couple of months. So in the north, we're at a somewhat higher level. But in both cases, what happens is that in large institutions, you have an opportunity to say there's 1,000 a, a workers in a hospital or something or more. Uh, then obviously you can adjust with much more flexibility than you could in a health unit that has 10 people. And say two people have gone away or are not able to work, and so we're working on that. It's a very challenging time in healthcare. Our healthcare workers are all heroes. And they've all worked hard for now in this pandemic, about 22 months. Mm. So we we want to be. And so this isn't the only problem we're facing. Obviously, it's the challenge of uh, many people requiring healthcare that's not COVID 19 related. We're entering flu season, which is a significant. Test last year we had a very good flu season but there's no guarantees everyone should get their flu shot and um, and uh, in addition to that obviously COVID nineteen and the pressures it puts on on healthcare workers so this is um, a necessary step but not one we take with any uh, with any enthusiasm right. it's just what we have to do
1: let's talk about the booster shot program rolled out yesterday so how I mean obviously it's not mandatory it is optional for people how are you going to convince people that this is the thing to do.
5: Well, for vulnerable people, that's not, I don't think, a significant challenge. And that's what our focus is right now. Um, those who are immunocompromised, uh, who need the third dose to complete essentially their first course of a COVID-19 vaccine, they, uh, they've already been getting it for some time. In long-term care, um, we're going through the system and the long-term care homes will be uh, mostly completed this week. The residents in long-term care, I should say. And there's another group of people who, cancer patients and others who are effectively moderately, moderately immunocompromised, but obviously dealing with significant health conditions. That's about 110,000 people who are getting it now. And so what we're doing is we're focusing on uh, those most vulnerable first. And in a general sense, people over 70 have got vaccinated at a very high level since the beginning of the pandemic, over 90%. And so I would expect that people will, um, want to get that booster shot when they're invited to do so. Mm -hmm. We're doing it in a very rigorous way uh, across the board. Uh, And in general terms, especially for those most vulnerable, the view is that they should get a booster shot six months after their second shot. Now, not a lot of people had their second shot six months ago. So this is not a lot of people right now. It was about 85,000 people, less than 2% of those eligible had got a second shot six months ago. Remember, the vaccine... uh, that we were dependent on amount of vaccine. So that's not a lot of people immediately, but that number will grow amongst those over 70 in November and December. And we'll be doing a significant number of third doses while we continue to get first and second doses done for those who haven't got those. And obviously we're going to start once it's approved by Health Canada to immunize children 5 to 11. So it's going to be an extremely... uh, busy uh, time from here to the end of the year.
1: Sounds like it. So which vaccine will be made available for the booster shots?
5: Uh, Pfizer or Moderna.
1: Okay. And there's no choice on that. You get what you Um, get. You get what you get.
5: Yeah. In general, in a general sense, I mean, in many of our large immunization centers, they tend to have both. Um, I received Moderna, for example, uh, when I got my uh, second shot and my first shot, one in April, one in July. Uh, and uh, but uh, you'll get Pfizer, and Moderna. But we're, we're focusing on the mRNA vaccines. The federal government uh, procured sufficient numbers to support uh, this campaign earlier this year. And so but the, for the largest group of people, they will be, start to become eligible uh, in, uh, in 2022. And this is something they'll do in the first number of months of 2022. The right. most important thing to remember, though, is that the people we really want to continue to vaccinate are people who are currently unvaccinated. Yesterday we had 42 people under 50 in critical care in BC. 42, 41 of them were unvaccinated COVID. Uh, so they were in critical care with COVID 19. They're getting help breathing. They're seriously ill, and it's going to impact them for a long time. 41 of 42 were unvaccinated. So my message to everyone who hasn't had their first shot: or need to complete their course, get vaccinated, and get vaccinated today.
1: Is there anything you can do, you think, at this point to, to really convince the last remaining holdouts? Of the, do they need more information? Do they need to talk to a doctor? Like, What, what do you think they need?
5: Uh, we're doing it all. I mean, we're advising people to talk to their doctors, to talk to their pharmacists. We're making vaccine available all over the province every day. And, uh, and we're making progress. I think yesterday it was uh, a couple of thousand people. It's not a small number. Remember, 89.6% of people over 12 received their, their first dose vaccine. About 85% now, almost 85% have received their second dose. So the vast majority are. The small group of people who are unvaccinated represent a massive number of cases and uh, represent uh, a threat to their own health and to the broader system. And, and simply put, the evidence now is clear, you know, there was a time in January and February when people said, well, these are new vaccines. We're not new vaccines anymore. Billions of people have taken them around the world. Their safety records are understood. And we just got to keep working. it." And mm-hmm. every day I talk to people and hear from people who've just got vaccinated. So we're not going to stop working on them.
1: Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning.
5: Hey, take care anytime, Simi.
1: You too. That is Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, talking about the challenge, particularly when it comes to the 4,000 or so healthcare workers who remain unvaccinated.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, this week we saw that report out of Oxford University. It said that Vancouver, surprise, surprise, is the least affordable city in all of North America. Also, not a surprise to people if you've looked at any kind of real estate listing in the last couple of years. Well, for more on this, we're joined now by our Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji.
2: Good morning, Simi. Yeah, that same study says that the trend also unsurprisingly is expected to continue. And then also in the last few days, we've been seeing this report that parents uh, in Vancouver, their gifting of down payments is way up. So the first time average now, you're looking at $180,000. Second time, like if you're moving up in a house, uh, $340,000. So what do we see as a result of these realities? People... Are getting pushed out, and obviously wealthier occupants are in the city center. Here's UBC School of Business Professor Thomas Davidoff.
0: Number one, there's tax policy. Uh, property taxes, as a fraction of value, or even in absolute terms, are pretty low. You know, you can own a two million house here and pay something like seven grand a year in property tax, which is. Not a lot of money uh, for somebody who, who's got a two million dollar property. I think it would be less than that. You know, maybe six grand, something like that. So, um, you know, let, let's get serious about that. You know, that would take money from people who own property and give it to people who don't, which obviously helps people who don't yet own property uh, to have enough money for food, clothes, and shelter. So there's tax reform. And the other thing is zoning reform, which, you know, can be a great machine in Vancouver and especially greater Vancouver, where there's so much land wasted on single family zoning uh, that could be townhomes or short, you know, modest apartment buildings. And developers, you know, by a rough calculation might pay a million bucks a lot for the right to redevelop. So just in the city of Vancouver, if there were a thousand single family homes, converted to some kind of moderate density every year, uh, you might raise a million times a thousand is a billion dollars a year. That would go a very long way to solving the problem of homelessness uh, and even reaching up the income distribution to uh, working families to get some kind of rent supplement. So more houses and more resources to people with low incomes could really help a lot.
2: Yeah, Simi. So in September 2020, Vancouver City Council uh, turned down that proposal to rezone single family units. And uh, the idea is being floated around again, and maybe with more support this time, uh, because it has to. With real estate increases in Vancouver, they're just happening so fast. And modeling is showing that our city's only headed towards more growth. So I think these rezoning policies for the six housing units on a single family lot that we've been seeing um, pop up. Uh, again, in discussion, and Mayor Kennedy Stewart uh, was really pushing for that. I think at this point, Simi, it's inevitable, and that as we get closer to next year's uh, election campaign for the new mayor of the the city of Vancouver, we're going to see a lot more debate around this. But I think the rezoning for the six housing units on a single-family lot is inevitable at this point um, as a way to also give more money to the city. Here's Professor Thomas Davidoff on that too.
0: No, I don't know who in their right mind would believe that when you, you drive around the West Side or even Point Grey Road and see these luxurious single-family homes going up on big lots, which is not what the market wants. It's you know socialism for the rich. You're providing a discount on brand new homes for people who can afford them. And there's no criteria that would lead you to say, yes, that, that's a great public policy. That's a great choice. Let's ban apartments. No reasonable person would say that. So I don't know what the council was thinking rejecting the first time around. I will say, though, uh, that what I really like about the current proposal is it makes it simple, right? So the other proposal was you're going to have on-site affordable housing, right? You're not going to give this right away for free to homeowners because that would just be a giant transfer to people who currently home own homes. Instead, they've got to sort of buy in. And in the original version, the way you bought in was by managing permanently low-income housing in your backyard. And that just doesn't make any sense. That's not who should be managing public housing. You know, that's a job for the public sector. So what this round uh, allows instead, or uh, in addition to that choice, uh, you can just make a choice to pay the government cash. And of course, the government can use that cash to support public housing. Cash in lieu of some kind of public benefit makes a huge amount of sense. Because it avoids the city having a complicated choice and getting ripped off by not holding out for enough upside, and it provides simplicity and transparency uh, for the market for people who want to build more housing on their lots. So, you know, give money to the city, let the city spend it on homeless support, on uh, support for low-income households generally looking to get into the market, and this is just a fantastic proposal.
1: Well, I don't know about that six places, six homes on one lot, Raji. I was talking to a couple of neighbors about that very proposal last week. They were not happy about that. Like, I think you could sell the idea of two, you could sell the idea of maybe three laneway house, legalized, you know, basement suite, and then a home. But six, I don't know, it seems a bit much. Why not? I think people are like, that's not what they want in their neighborhood. I'm just telling you, that's what that was. I was surprised yeah. too, because I was like, oh, well, I could see four you know four i can see for sure but i think six it feels like for some people just us uh, that's too many on every yeah. si- like if you could every single family lot could build six you know residences on there uh, people might that's too much for people
2: Yeah, I think before I was delving into this, and I've been looking at it for the last several weeks a little bit more closely, and I think before I would have said, oh, it's too Frankenstein, you know, we can't squish that many housing units on a tiny lot and then imagine all that many more people around in the neighborhood and this kind of thing. And then I've been thinking that I have to really challenge that like way of thinking because it's not Mm -hmm. it's not sustainable we have to go towards more density it is the inevitable direction because of vancouver's affordability problem but also you know in in thinking about climate change and how to use space more efficiently we don't want people out uh, in that suburban sprawl all driving into the core. And Mm -hmm. as our population increases in Vancouver, hey, it's expected to in Abbotsford too. Look at Surrey. Surrey is just booming and only expected to increase in population uh, with every year. So dense living is the way. You got to get on board. I did ask uh, Professor Thomas Davidoff what he thought about the pushback. And he said that, you know, this NIMBY kind of thinking, the not in my backyard, it might be more exaggerated um, than it is Mm -hmm. in reality, that just in conversations people are saying it, but that when you push people on it and their values, that people are okay with uh, more affordable housing around them.
1: Oh, I could Um, definitely use some more townhouses in the neighborhood and some duplexes, but the problem is the duplexes that are being built are too expensive. So mm, downsizing is, you can't do it because there's nothing to downsize into except a condo and people are like, well, that's too much. Where's the missing middle that we always talk about?
2: Yeah. And this doesn't solve necessarily the missing middle, right? Like you still need a a good chunk of cash to be able to, to live in Vancouver, even if we do move to these like six, uh, six more units, um, on a single family lot. So I mean, it's not, we're not ever going to go back in time where I think Vancouver is an actually livable city, but gosh, hopefully we don't hold this most unaffordable ranking (laughs) uh,
1: forever. forever, right? That would be nice. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi.